This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So I want to acknowledge um, our principal partner, Film Victoria, who are a presenting partner on this session. There's, their ongoing support of AIDC is incredible um, and their involvement in, in various sessions in AIDC is also incredible. So I want to introduce our very special guest, Robert Fernandez. I'm not going to do a full bio of Robert because Thank you. <laughs> we will... Um, take up the first 15 minutes, yeah. but he's had a very prolific career and it's uh, not looking like it's going to slow down anytime soon. So if you're not sure of his background, read it up on the AIDC app or website. And speaking of the app, if you've got the um, app on your phone, you can text in questions via the app. So if you go to, you find this session in the app and then scroll down to the bottom of the session and it'll say, questions. Click on that and then towards the end of the session I'll have a look and we'll read out some of them. So, Robert, welcome. Thank you. Can we have a round of applause for Robert? <laughs> uh, I was actually told this was going to be early and not to expect more than five people, so I was tricked. <laughs> um, but it, it was, it's really wonderful to see so many people come out this early, so thank you. Thank you, Robert. So why don't we start with um, how you got into this caper of making documentaries, producing documentaries? Um, uh, I started producing, um, I started in the world of television commercials um, 30 years ago. And slowly starting there is where I started to um, establish relationships with a number of filmmakers, first off being Errol Morris. Um, I started producing him television commercials in 1997. And just based on that experience, it sort of moved on to him wanting me to be involved with his films. Um, he did this film, Mr. Death, and I started working with him near the end of that. And the first film that I sort of worked with him as a producer was on The Fog of War. Um, and he keeps me around and we have a great relationship. Um, so I've been sort of producing all of his film and TV since then. So. Fantastic. Before we get into a bit more in depth about your working relationship with mm -hmm. Errol Morris, I want to ask you about what was your first job? How did you get into the business and how has that influenced you as a producer? Um, I didn't go to film school. Um, I come from a family of production accountants. Um, my mother and both of her sisters were bookkeepers at production companies. Um, and that was really while I was in, in college. Um, working part-time, helping there was really my first exposure to the film business. Um, I think it's part of the reason why um, I have this affinity for budgeting um, and dealing with projects in that respect. So that was my really my way in. So I take very good care of all the production accountants that are involved in any of our projects. Um, I completely understand what they have to go through. Um, so I started through there, and, and through that is where I really sort of gained an understanding of uh, production and, 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 and budgeting, first and foremost. And then that sort of led into um, establishing relationships with directors and, and really starting to produce. Um, starting with that, I knew right then and there I just always wanted to be a producer. 
So I never had any aspirations of ever wanting to direct or do anything like that. A producer is, is basically what I always wanted to do. So, Why do you like it? Um, I'm a bit of a control freak. So having the ability to be involved in all aspects and responsible and organized. Um, but more than anything else, um, for me, it's being put in a position where um, it's my job to help sort of realize the vision of the director. Um, and to me, that's of great importance. And that's the sort of relationship I have with the different directors that I work with. I feel it's, it's my place to try to do everything possible to help realize what they want to do. Um, and so that's really the main reason why I love producing, first and foremost. And what, what sort of a producer are you? And does that vary from project to project? There's lots of different types of producers in terms of being very, very hands-on kind of, you know, nose deep in everything or taking a more of a, uh, um, giving a bit more space to the director? What sort of a producer are you? I'm totally hands-on, involved in every, I mean, even to this day, every project I work on, I do all of the budgeting because literally that's where I feel is the place where you really get to figure out how to, um, especially with a project like Wormwood, which was just so complicated. Um, I sort of use that as the basis by which to sort of help make creative decisions just in dealing with logistics and on a financial level. Um, but I'm involved in all aspects of it. Um, and then just as far as going into the, on the post side of things, it varies from filmmaker to filmmaker, uh, just in terms of what my role is in, in the edit. Um, there are certain filmmakers I'm in there every day with them. Um, and others, someone like Errol, um, I, I'm sort of used more as like a sounding board. So what I will do is as he's getting cuts or even segments of cuts in place, that's when I'll sort of get involved because I actually help to sort of provide this sort of distance from being within all of the material and give him more of a perspective of what an audience would. Um, so that's just the nature of our relationship, but it varies. It's really more filmmaker specific. So do you want to um, tell us anything about Wormwood before we play the trailer? It took a very long time. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was, um, with my relationship with Errol, I mean, part of what we do and as a, why, why he's such a brilliant filmmaker is every time we do a project, his intent is to try to push forward the form, whatever that means. I mean, in the early days, this predates me when he worked on the Thin Blue Line, um, there was a lot of pushbacks. People felt it wasn't documentary because he did reenactments. That wasn't at that point traditional documentary. Um, they felt it was manipulative. Um, he started it, the emphasis on certain types of music. Once again, they felt it was manipulating an audience. Um, so in every project that we do, um, he sort of comes forward with thoughts and ways to try to push the form. Um, and Wormwood is basically 20 years worth of working together. It's the culmination of that. Um, literally anything you can think of from traditional interviews to graphics and archival to scripted drama, uh, you name it, we produced it. Um, and uh, it's the reason why it took, it was actually two and a half years of physical production. Um, we started in May of 2015, uh, doing our initial interviews and we delivered completed masters right before Telluride, um, which was September of last year. And it was two and a half years of production, two and a half years of post-production. Um, 
CG effects, compositing. It's every, as Errol calls it, he calls it the everything bagel of, of filmmaking. It's everything he wanted to do was actually done. And Netflix was an amazing partner. Uh, they were incredibly supportive, um, especially when we pitched the idea to them. It was four sentences, an idea of what it was. And they literally, they were great. They sort of went with the process and it was very challenging. I, I mean, a lot of things, it's, it's, it's a weird feeling. I haven't seen that in a while. It's a weird feeling to look at something and sort of travel back and envision four years of one's life involved in one project like that. Um, and funny enough, in the middle of production on Wormwood, while scripts were being written, we decided to make another movie, <laughs> um, which is the B-side, which is playing here on Tomorrow Night. Tomorrow um, because we had a couple of months, and we, he hadn't, he was a little antsy, and so he decided to make another movie. So it was great, um, which Netflix bought, um, which was an interesting thing. Um, we were at Telluride, and one of the executives from Netflix came up to me and was like, "Do we already pay for this movie?" Because it happened in the middle of production on Wormwood, and it was like, "No, no, no, not at all." So, uh, but they bought it anyway, which was great. Um, no, but it's I'm very proud of it. You know, it's sort of like I said, it's a culmination of. 20 years of experimentation, um, various techniques that he always wanted to try, but honestly could never afford to do, uh, we were able to do on this. So for, for that, we're ever thankful for Netflix, for, for their stepping up and, and fully supporting this the way they did. Well, why don't we start at the beginning? So how did the, um, how did the project actually start and what was your, your first work on it as a producer? We were at the Toronto Film Festival um, releasing uh, The Unknown Known, the Donald Rumsfeld documentary we did, and we met with the executives from Netflix and basically sold them on the idea of doing a series having to do with MKUltra, this sort of secret CIA operation, uh, which is what the film The Manchurian Candidate is sort of based on. Um, and really, the pitch was Errol wanted to do a hybrid uh, series hybrid of really documentary and scripted drama. Um, and that really interested them because I think Netflix was looking to try to do whatever they could to push the form as much as possible. Um, and they basically said, we're in. It was as simple as that. Um, it took about 15 months to do research and just to figure out what story we were going to do and then the process of uh, budgeting and dealing with the logistics of something like that. The problem was we really didn't know what it was going to be. Everyone was like, there's going to be interviews, and there's going to be graphics, and we're going to do visual effects, and I'm going to do drama, and I'm going to get all these actors. And, and then he would leave, and then Netflix would look to me and go, like, how much is that going to cost? And then I would tell them, and they were like, we're not going to spend that much money. So it, it, it actually, I, I sort of look at this as, for a producer, it was like documentary producing. Because literally, it constantly changed. Every time we shot an interview, it sort of informed what was the next thing we were going to do. Then I had to sort of deal with the logistics of that and the financial repercussions of that. So it was constantly changing. Over the two and a half years of production, um, there were roughly almost 60 versions of estimates that I had to present to Netflix. Uh, and they usually kept on going up and down and up and down. So it, it was it was interesting. Um, you know, it was just it was a challenge to sort of try to support the vision of a of a director like that, and also sort of deal with the the concerns of the studio. 
Well, should we put up the first um, slide of one of your, tell us about this. So this is. Um... So this was uh, in keeping with the three sentence pitch uh, to Netflix. Um, this was our idea of what the first schedule would look like. Very simple. Um, it's always better to give li as little information as possible. Uh, when you're when you're working with a, a director like Errol, because uh, it'll literally it was changing as I was typing this in. Um, so this was the first pitch, just to give him a sort of an overview. We figured to do six episodes, uh, it would roughly take. Um, we we figured eighteen to twenty months. Um, only if it ended up being this way. And this is the second page of that, isn't it? Correct. Yep. Um, and what do you think, looking back at that now? It was uh, overly optimistic, uh, for sure. Um, um, especially, and we'll, we'll show something. I knew I was in trouble. Um, so when we finally got the green light and we're going to start doing our interviews, Errol is known for doing uh, this interview technique called the Interatron, which with McNamara and Rumsfeld, it's this system of prompters where the, um, the interview subject is basically talking to a video image of Errol, and Errol has the same, and right behind the image is the lens. So it gives this sort of feeling that the interview subject is speaking directly to the viewer. Um, he didn't want to do that for this one. So after submitting this, the first thing he comes to me and tells me is like, I figured it out. We're going to do interviews, and I'm going to, we're going to use 10 cameras at once. <laughs> um, so that's what ended up happening. We ended up, all of the interviews uh, on this series were used. We shot 10 cameras simultaneously. Um, that's what gives sort of... It, it, it really, really gives sort of an interesting effect to the interviews. Uh, it does actually create this amazing drama because you're sort of capturing one interview in ten different ways. Um, it became a bit of a bear for the editor to deal with, um, and also um, trying to figure out a way to have ten cameras in a shot and not being able to see any of them. So. Uh, um, I, we had like a, a diagram in place and I told Errol, you know, I was coming here and he was like, you can't show the diagram because everybody asked me how I did it. I don't want to tell anybody how I did it. Because um, with his Interatron, um, which was his invention, um, he never patented it. And in the States, once something is, once there's something in, whether it's in use or it's publicized, you have a year to patent it. And he never did that. And he kind of, I've been hearing this now for 20 years, how he never patented the Terratron and everybody's ripping him off. And um, so now he's like, you know, he can't patent the 10 camera system, but he's uh, very quick to make sure no one sort of sees how we figured it out. And we just started another film uh, that we're working on. And fortunately, we're only shooting interviews with six cameras. So it's, uh, yeah. So did you, when, when Errol... Uh said, I've got this great idea, 10 cameras for the interviews, did you just say, yes, let's do it, or? You know, it's, um, uh, as a producer, I, I have this sort of philosophy. I, I, my feeling is the first word out of your mouth shouldn't be the word no. It, it's, it really shouldn't. Um, I don't say yes right away. Um, but, you know, I feel it's my job to figure out a solution. 
Um, and this, and this is something we've been talking about for a really long period of time. Um, and you know, it was just a way for us to sort of elevate the form or just as far as what you would expect from someone like Errol. Um, so I just took it upon myself. It was for the collective team to sort of figure out a way to achieve that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it took a little bit and I, you know, um, the interviews were shot by Ellen Curris and a, a lot of credit goes to Ellen for sort of not running away the second that she heard there were going to be 10 cameras involved in a single interview. And she did an amazing job in terms of sort of figuring out. And a lot of it had to do with the specifics of a location. Um, we shot these interviews on location in an abandoned location. Um, a lot of the cameras were reflections shooting through windows and two-way glass and reflection off of monitors. So to, to give it, because it was in keeping with the sort of CIA inside CIA type um, tone to the piece. So from your original schedule and estimates that you did, when you uh, got thrown the the 10 camera suggestion, Mm -hmm. how did that affect things for you? What did you have to do to pull it off? Well, fortunately, it was the first thing that we shot. So in uh, early June of 2015, we shot four days. So... Um, all of that interview, um, two of the four days were interviews with Eric and then a couple of other interviews with his attorneys and a couple of other characters that are in the, in the series. Um, so it was the first thing that we did. Literally the hardest part was finding a location because Errol wanted to do this on a location and, and have it feel a specific way so that it was of the time we're in the present time, but as you know, Eric is speaking about his father's death, which took place in 1953. So it was very much, he was looking for a type of place, paneled, you know, there were, we, usually we build a set when we do sort of interviews just to control sound and light. And in this particular instance, um, that was the challenge. So we found this ab- abandoned uh, offices um, building that used to be a bank, um, had no electricity, had no air conditioning. Um, um, so logistically, that was an issue. Um and really finding a place that would be able to handle and use a lot of the architecture place to handle setting up that many cameras. So even there, I would say in that sequence, you're probably only looking at the use of six or seven of the cameras. Um, um, but it was a lot to do. And, and the big thing with this series, um, it was one editor. So Stephen Hathaway, who's part, you know, Stephen, myself and Errol, we've, we've been working together since the fog of war. Um, that entire series was done by one editor, believe it or not. So um, um, he didn't get much sleep during those two years. So, yeah. And so did you, um, you said that when you did the original estimates, you, you didn't budget it for 10 camera? No, not, not to that extent. It would, it, we, so we, we put forward the idea. Netflix came back to us and said, um, we need everything in 4K, okay? Um, we need everything raw, believe it or not. And we're like, we're shooting 10 cameras. You have no idea. You know, I don't know if there are enough drives in Boston for what you want us to do. No, you have to do it. So we did it. Um, and I said, okay, well, I can't budget for that. We're going to sort of treat it as an overage. Um, so after the first four days, I went back to Netflix and the overage to shoot raw was about $75,000. We did not shoot raw again. That was the end of it. Um, um, you know, 
because of the service, everything's in 4K, they're always wanting to make sure they're at the forefront as technology changes, um, that they're able to put forward uh, material in, in, a, in a proper way. So um, that I understood. But in this situation, they had to let that Yeah, fortunately, down. we only had to do it once. I mean, literally, we had like a room full of drives. It was really ridiculous. But Because uh, in the first four days of interviews with all of those cameras, um, it ended up being roughly about 120 hours of material. You know, we did 12 hours of interviews multiplied by 10. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. And so, the, you, obviously, you went to Netflix with that overage for shooting raw, but in terms of actually what you had to move around in the budget... Did you actually just do a new estimate and go back? It was just constantly maneuvering and changing. Um, the part of this that was the most difficult, we knew there was going to be a scripted drama shoot at some point. Um, once the interviews were done, we started editing right away. Um, we would start to sort of lay out the interview material to help sort of figure out the structure of the story. Um, and be, being that it was six episodes, we had to sort of build. It wasn't like a a three-act structure for a film. Literally, it was like a mini structure for six episodes or six chapters. Um, um, so I was sort of moving around the, um, the documentary portion, um, always knowing that there would be some major rebudgeting having to do. We, we just sort of like set aside a certain amount um, for what we felt would be the drama shoot. Um, and ultimately that kept on expanding because every time you do an interview, it sort of brought about a number of ideas, um, and sort of a way to deal with the structurally, we would just start storyboarding. So, uh, there's a lot of storyboarding that we did early on. I would say probably more than a year prior to even scripts being written, which just visual ideas from the interviews that Errol had in a certain way, the interviews and these storyboards helped to sort of structure what, the dialogue was going to be. Um, and that, that process just took a really long time. Let's um, put those storyboards up and we'll, we'll keep chatting. So the it seems like a very open-ended kind of process. It actually sounds like a bit of a nightmare for a producer. Um, why? Like what, at, at what point, like, did you feel like you were kind of ever losing control of it? You said that you're a control freak. Uh, no. I mean, these help because I think part of the part of the, the challenge was um, trying to keep control of things and making sure to facilitate things for Errol, um, but also keeping the studio informed as to what was going on. I, my feeling was the more they were informed, um, the better chance we had to have them understand when that day would come, when you would go to them and have the conversation about the budget. Um, and even in looking, preparing for this and looking back at these storyboards, it's amazing how a lot of the imagery you see here is actually in, um, the series and these storyboards were done a year and a half before we actually even shot the drama. Um, so it was a really interesting way of, of creating this framework. And what we ended up doing was we edited the storyboards, the images into a cut to better inform and have everyone understand how the documentary and the graphics and the archival and this drama were going to be integrated. Um, so that was very helpful. We did a lot of storyboarding, a lot. Yeah. And so in terms of the relationship with Netflix, were you working with 
the documentary side of Netflix or the drama? It started with documentary, uh, working with uh, Lisa Nishimura and Adam Daldeo. And then once we got into the scripted portion, then I had an executive on the scripted side, Peter Freelander, who was amazing. Um, and it was very helpful because he works House of Cards and Narcos and Godless. He does Black Mirror. He works on amazing projects there. So it was, it was really great to have that support and insight from an executive who deals in the scripted world. Um, and it was helpful for us. We always knew that Peter Sarsgaard was going to play, um, Frank Olson. Um, and then, in the casting process is how we were able to assemble that great cast and, and, and Peter and Netflix were, were quite helpful with that because Molly and Christian, they all are on other Netflix shows. So that sort of really helped us because it was such an unusual thing. Um, this past week we did, um, back in the States, we had a screening for Emmy for all of that stuff, that fun stuff you have to do. Um, and Molly even said, um, it was at the Venice Film Festival when they premiered the episodes. It was the first time she actually saw the completed series. And it was then where it actually made sense to her. Because it was a very odd scripted shoot. Um, you were shooting scenes. It was like you were shooting vignettes. It was not like a... We had a script, but it was a 60-page script that was sort of built around all of this documentary footage. Um, and we just didn't want the actors, especially really the only person um, was Frank Olson, uh, Peter, who spoke with Eric a little bit to get a sense of the father. But everyone else, it was really minimal material. We wanted the actors to sort of embody these characters and give it its own personality because none of these people are alive anymore. Um, so that was something that Errol really wanted to do. And, and the actors had a wonderful time doing it. Um, because really there was a lot of trust in terms of what they brought to the, to the characters. And so had you, um, in terms of like the scale of this drama, had you ever produced drama of this size before? Produced drama, not to this extent. Um, especially, we had problems with scripts. We went through a couple of writers. Ultimately, the scripts were written by... Again, the editor, um, Stephen, and another person at Errol's office actually wrote the scripts for it. At a certain point, it made the most sense. Um, so when we got the go-ahead um, specific to Peter Sarsgaard's schedule, um, we had four weeks to prep a 20-day period shoot in New York City between Christmas, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, yes, exactly. Um, and uh, literally where 16 of the days were night shoots. Uh, and, you know, it's, and it's the challenge of what you don't think about in documentary. It's like you're shooting in New York in December before Christmas, and it has to feel like 1953. Um, little things like holiday decorations and all of those kind of things. So we assembled a really an amazing team that dealt, just dealt with the drama. Um, I think another difficulty here, it's probably the longest credit sequence in the history of documentary. Um, cause we had two entirely separate crews, um, because it went on for so long. Um, and that was a whole process of dealing with the unions because there were two cinematographers and 
two production designers. And so in terms of dealing with even main title credits, it became like a logistical nightmare in terms of preference. Um, because you have someone like Ellen who shot all the interviews and then you have Igor Martinovich who did all of the drama and how that ended up working. The preference ended up being on drama because we shot 20 days of drama and we only shot 11 days of interviews. So that's the rationale of how that worked. But that was weeks and weeks of just dealing with credits, um, which is something you don't think about. And it's, that's something I hope to never have to deal with ever again. Actually. And it was you personally doing that? Yeah, having to negotiate with the unions, yes. Yeah. And Netflix had standards of things. So, you know, they're a relatively new studio. Like overnight, they've become the biggest studio in Hollywood or like one of the major networks. So they're very careful to make sure they're not setting precedent that will cause problems with the other thousand shows they're producing. Um, and because we were going into new territory, everything was difficult. So, um, yeah. You're bringing, it's like, I'm going through like PTSD right now. It's, you're bringing back all these memories. I don't know if I'll be able to travel back home when it's over. So, so the, um, we'll go, we'll go to some questions, um, from the delegates in a moment, but like, I guess everyone wants to know, you know, what, what it's obviously a really big project. The schedule went on for much longer than you thought it, than you originally planned. Did you, did Netflix just keep on giving more money or where did you have to make sacrifices? Oh, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, um, you do. <laughs> no, I mean, we, it ended up costing more. Uh, I would say probably the scale of the drama when we, when we gave them the original script, cause it was, it was six episodes, uh, the saving grace in negotiating the deal. Um, and the beauty of Netflix is each episode only needed to, it needed to be somewhere between 43 and 65 minutes. So I wasn't dealing with a formatted show. It wasn't like you needed to provide 55 minutes of a formatted show. Um, so that gave us a lot of flexibility, but six episodes was a lot. We ended up, uh, after we went to them first with a script that was a hundred pages long due to budget, we ended up only doing 60, uh, which was challenging because, uh, the ratio, he wanted it to be 50, 50, um, interview and drama. And in the series, there's a lot of sort of repetition. We sort of utilize some of the drama over and over again, but that was part of the story. Um, Errol wanted to create this sort of like this sort of Rashomon type feeling to what happened in the hotel room. And the series culminates with showing the various sides of what could have happened and sort of letting the viewer sort of decide what actually happened in there, um, which um, wasn't the most satisfying thing for Eric. Um, but you know, it was, it was always an understanding of that's what we were going to do. So the, so, so the actual, where you, where you see the, um, the hotel room, the hotel Stadler is now a different hotel. The rooms are different. Um, so we actually built the hallways and that room in a studio. Um, and everything in the, everything in this, a lot takes place inside that hotel room. So that was something that was designed and built to sort of replicate at that time, um, how the hotel room looked. Um, and it's also so, sort of helped us because in the series, we sort of show the, the various aspects of being thrown out the window, diving out the window. Um, and there was, we had a, a really massive green screen shoot. So, 
all of that falling you see in the title sequence of Peter Sarsgaard falling, literally rigging green screen in a studio. Peter did it all himself. And then um, the background and everything were plates and stuff that were sort of all designed in post and visual effects. So. And so was that, um, was that part of your drama shoot with, between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Yes. So right. the last, the la- we'd left it for the last day because after being in a harness and, um, and being up in the air 20 feet and doing spins and turns, you know, Peter could hardly walk. So we were like, cut, it's a wrap. Thank you, Peter. And that was it. And then uh, it was done. But, uh, but he was great. He, he insisted on doing all that himself. Um, and all the visuals of the fall, it, it was, those were all things that were captured in camera. It's just all of the compositing is what was done in post. Well, let's talk about posts. Um, we've had some great questions come in, and one of them is about the, the editorial process in post with Netflix. So what was how, – how did you work with Netflix in post? Well, in the beginning of this process, um, believe it or not, um, they had a bond – they had the, the series bonded. I had to deal with a bond company. And if anyone here has ever had to deal with a bond company – turn around and run away as quickly as you can. I mean, they were great, but how can you bond a documentary? So we would sit down and they were like, like, I see your budget, four shoot days. What are you going to shoot? I don't know. So when you do these interviews, what are the visuals? I, I don't know. You know, that, those are the conversations. So about halfway through, they sort of realized you really can bond a documentary. Um, and that was literally the last project that Netflix for a documentary that has ever been bonded. So that was, that was a good part. Um, but part of our agreement with Netflix was we needed to provide them, um, three rounds of rough cuts and notes per episode. So basically 18 rounds of rough cuts amongst all the episodes. So we created this intricate schedule where it was, present a rough cut they have a week to give notes and then in the middle of that you're sending them the next rough cuts and it was this rolling thing so by the time you started with episode one and got through episode six it will now enough time for the editor to then basically come back to give the next round of cuts on that episode so um episode one a week for notes episode two a week for notes and then when we did the second round we would send them two episodes at a time episode 101 and 102 and then a week later we would get notes because what ended up happening is because of the delay and we wanted to make it for telluride um the post the 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 post got really compressed mainly in finishing we we finished all six episodes in just under five weeks of finishing and one editor one editor Superhuman. The only person on the planet that's more of a control freak than me is Steve. Steven, Steven's amazing. And, uh, and honestly, it's something as complex as this. Um, when, when I had budgeted the, the project, the idea was about halfway through post, we would have a second editor to sort of deal with sequences. And honestly, there was no way to sort of keep an intricate story like this together. It needed to be in the hands and the mind of one person. Um, yeah, and that's that's sort of how it worked. So, and so there's there's a, some great questions coming through. Um, as a producer, what was the most emotionally intense day of the shoot? God, um, on, I would say honestly, uh, as far as an emotional day, 
probably the last day of the drama shoot. Um, I mean, the first day of the drama shoot for, you know, even for someone like, well, actually, the, the most emotional day I would have to say is the, was the first day of the drama shoot. Because this was like a culmination of 20 years for Errol to be in a situation where he's shooting drama with actors like that. Um, so, I mean, he was really nervous about it. And it was just sort of like sort of saying after all this time, this here we are. He's being provided another way to sort of tell a story. Um, and then the last day, because it's kind of like you just were on a four week ride of filming, even though we shot another day or two of interviews after the fact. Um if you want to say emotional, that would probably be it. I don't know if it was just exhaustion, but um, um, those those were days that I remember quite fondly. And so that that's actually another question about how many interviews did you shoot in total and did all of those end up in the... Yeah, we did 11 days of interviews. Um, we did two sittings with Eric, um, the initial interview, and then we actually did a final interview at the end where he was in the set of the room. Um, we actually, after we struck the, uh, the drama shoot, we ended up keeping certain elements in case we had, we ended up going back and shooting visuals using certain elements. But part of our thinking was maybe we would bring Eric back, ask him some other questions, have an interview in the setting where his father was killed. Um, so we reassembled a portion that was one of the times I did say no Errol wanted to rebuild the whole set and I was like no how about a corner so we built a corner of the set um, and we only used three cameras for that interview um, but we were near the end and really the justification was you know we're supposed to be starting finishing in about six weeks I, we can't give the editor you know another 30 hours of material it'll it'll there's no way to justify it so um I didn't say no. I kind of sort of said no, but it worked out well. It worked out fine. Yeah. And what's, what's Errol's reaction when you do say no? Do you, uh, uh, the, one of the questions here is um, things that you fundamentally disagreed on on the project or? Um, we have a wonderful relationship. I think he, we trust each other a lot. I think um, it's one of the best things. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing projects with you know recurring projects with certain directors he sort of gained this trust um and he's sort of very trusting of when i come back to him and say like we logistically there's a reason why we can't do it or financially there's a reason why we can't do it um and but i also know that at that point i don't really say no it's to say, to say like we can't do it this way here are some other options um, I always think you want to come forward with solutions. Just saying, no, you can't do it, figure out another way to do it is not the right way to do it. Um, so we have a really good relationship where he sort of trusts. He knows when I come in and push back, um, he knows I have nowhere else to go. So it's not a fight. He sort of already knows that I've fought as hard as I can on his behalf, and, which is a real, it took a while to do that. And it's really, it's really great. Because when you're in the heat of battle like that, um, It'll be hard if you put yourself in a position where you're sort of battling with the director and you're battling with the studio. And even though it was never really like that, um, I think it sort of impedes sort of the creative process and being able to put something forward um, as good as it possibly can be. So, And let's just come back to the interviews just to recap on that. So the interviews, how many people in total did you interview over 11 oh, days? Um, I think we only interviewed seven people. 
every interview made it into the piece. Um, the, um, not to give anything away to those who haven't seen it. Um, a key interview was Seymour Hirsch, who's a very well-known journalist. Um, it took us about a year to get Seymour to talk to us. Um, no one knew what the interview was going to be. Um, as far as, I wouldn't say it was an emotional moment, but as far as like the most satisfying moment in the entire process was that interview. Because literally, in the midst of that interview, we sort of realized we had the ending to the series. I don't think Errol realized it, but Stephen and I, who were off to the side, literally, you know, you see two geeky guys fist pumping because it's, we're like, finally, we have an ending. It's like, it's perfect. Um, you know, make sure we get the release signed. So Cy Hirsch can't say you can't use it. Um, so that was a very big part of it. Um, but everyone who we interviewed was, and I think, I think ultimately it was eight people. Eight people. Right. Because actually that was, you just answered one of the questions, which was, did Seymour Hirsch come easily to the project? Another question is, did you ever feel in danger from the CIA while you were making the project? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Um, it's funny, someone asked me that recently. You know, I'm hopeful that the CIA has much bigger problems than worrying about, you know, and I, honestly, they probably don't even care at this point. Um, I think you just get accustomed to it. We've done so many um, sort of politically based, you know, you're interviewing, you know, um, Secretary of Defense, McNamara and Rumsfeld. Um, when we were doing a standard operating procedure, which was about the photographs from Abu Ghraib, um, um, that was probably the, 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 the one time where we felt the most you know, we had to be careful. This is going to get out. We're going to get problems because they're not going to be happy about what we're doing. Um, and in that particular instance, it was so unsafe. Um, the visuals we shot in that film of the torture and the sequences and the stuff that happened at Abu Ghraib. Um, we actually built, uh, based off of blueprints and photographs, we actually built the first floor of the prison on a stage in L.A., because it was just impossible and unsafe for us to even venture into the country to think that we could ever shoot there. Mm. Um, but it was more visual reinforcements for um, what was being discussed. So, Good. And um, everybody wants to know what the budget was. Why haven't you mentioned that? Because I can't tell you. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, That's okay. Yeah. The, 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 it just you can explain that that net the Netflix it's you don't they don't let you The say budget that. was okay. It could have been should have been more. We ended up doing a lot, you know. If uh if in traditional drama a drama on television, um the usual thought is in drama on television is like three million dollars an hour. It wasn't that. So um so for two and a half years, it, it was a lot of moving things around and uh, making compromises and constantly renegotiating. Um, and really the brunt of the burning was in the post at the end and the finishing. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, we work with the same group of people and they were very passionate about the project and were able to work with us on it. And how do you work as a as a producer in post? I mean, and, and given that you've worked with this same team with Errol for many years now, with Stephen Hathaway as well, what's your process? So I, I um, 
I'm not in the edit room every day. They edit up in Cambridge, up at his office. And um, my office, I'm in New York. So I would go up a couple times a month. Um, but what, what they would do is they would put together sequences of cuts, and then that's when I would see it. And so I'm sort of sort of used as almost like a reaction to what the audience would be. I think I, I do a pretty good job of sort of removing myself from the process and I'm looking at what's there versus looking at a cut and sort of referencing things I know that we've shot. Um, so I feel that's my, cause he, he, he tends to look for a lot of opinion and get reactions from people. And I think that's part of what he gets from me. It's more of like a general audience's reaction. Does it make sense? Do you understand what's going on? That kind of thing. Um, that's just the nature of how I work with Errol. And then there are other filmmakers that I work with that I'm in the edit room every day. So it just sort of varies to the needs of a project and how a particular filmmaker wants to work. And, but in terms of actually managing the creative, the, the, the resourcing of post-production, you said that post-production went on for two and a half years. Like that's, tell us more about that. Right after the first interview, the editor's in working on the material and forming, you know, the interviews form what we're going to do. We're going to do visual shooting. The interviews form other people that we want to interview. So it's like every interview sort of uncovers another thing. Um, it's kind of the beauty of this type of filmmaking. Um, so you're just constantly in motion. So the offline, the offline period, which is the benefit of having one editor, uh, the offline period is from beginning to end. It never stopped, never stopped um, because we take interviews and then they would work on it for weeks and months to sort of form what we needed. And we would see the holes and it would be like uh, it would be important for us to speak to this person or we need to uh, schedule a visual shoot. Like after the first round of interviews, we did a couple of days of filming at um, Eric Olson still lives in the home where he grew up with his parents. So we went there to shoot visuals, no interviews. And there's a lot of stuff of Eric in this home. Um, we, we cast an actor to play the younger version of Eric. So it's a very complicated film because you have Peter Sarsgaard playing Frank Olson. And then you see archival material of the real Frank Olson. And then you have Eric Olson older. And then you see archival of him when he's a baby and then you see a young actor playing him when he was eight or nine years old so it just became very complex because you were sort of jumping from 1953 to 1975 to 2004 to 2017 so as a way of sort of keeping that uh, that track in place became really sort of complicated that's where the use of graphics kind of helped and even one of the sequences that we showed where it would show types of like mother, father, it was a way of us trying to show Peter Sarsgaard is Frank Olson and, and really more like, you know, general, you know, Rouette is this actor. Um, um, Lashbrook is Christian Camargo and you may see a photo of him in archival and then you cut to the actor. It was a way of helping people track because it got really complicated and we didn't want to do like titles or graphics explaining what you who you were talking to who you were saying we didn't want to do that so um our feeling is it would impede the drama of it um so we really like you have to give the audience credit that they're going to understand and be able to track what this is so and i know that um you're not going to mention the the specifics of the budget but one of the questions is the original budget versus the final budget could you estimate a percentage of 
from the original budget to where we ended up, it probably went up by 40%. But don't also don't forget, we delivered the series 11 months later than, uh, than it was originally supposed to be. So it was 11 months more of production. Um, and a big part of it, also a big part of it, to be honest, cost-wise, we had four weeks to prep. Literally, you're doing a four-week... We shot a film inside of, this, of a series. So it's prepping a film in four weeks in New York, which is the most... In a, a union shoot, which is probably the most expensive place in the world to shoot. Um, so that ended up being a rather substantial part of the budget. And did Netflix ever freak out that they were never going to have it delivered? Uh, no, because they were owned like my house and my kids. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say, I mean, they were wonderful to deal with. Um, um, they take great pride in sort of being a place, a studio that's filmmaker friendly, and they really are. They were very deferential to Errol. Um, um, maybe with a less known filmmaker like that, it was a really big deal for them. And they kind of, they understood that they were, um, sort of putting a flag in the ground, sort of staking a new way, believe me, they're taking credit for it, take a new way of sort of elevating the form. Um, and it goes hand in hand. You need the resources to do that. And, um, they, they were a terrific partner and hopefully this is going to be the first of many series or projects with them, with Errol, for sure. Fantastic. And um, one of the questions is actually about the music. So the music in this film seems to be a massive component in connecting the imagery and grounding the whole mood and tone of the film. Could you talk about the process you went through in deciding to use this type of music? So um, Paul Leonard Morgan is the composer, um, who's brilliant. Uh, this was the second project we worked with him on. He did the music on the B-side. He had no time. I mean, honestly, when you're picture-locking cuts and finishing in five weeks, he was sending us cues, but literally he was in, the re in recording music while we were conforming. I mean, honestly, I, I can't imagine anyone else. But the music in this, it's music and sound design. So the drama, it's really one and the same. So everything, we didn't have separate sound design done. Um, really, the, the sound effects in that bed is part of the composition. And that's all Paul. Um, there's very little, usually in credit sequences are licensed music. For the most part, everything that, that's in there was composed to picture, um, which is the way he works. Um, and he's, he was, he's brilliant. So, um, and um, it, it's good to see or to see here. It's, um, Netflix was great in premiering the series and we were at a number of film festivals to be able to really appreciate it in a, in a theatrical setting because that's how it was, how it was made. And, um, and ultimately they actually even did a theatrical release, the four and a half hour version of Wormwood. Um, to really sort of uh, appreciate the craft because you don't really sort of see it when everybody's watching it on a device that's like this big. Um, I think it was part of, part of the drama is just, you want the audience to feel overwhelmed in terms of with the, the music and the sound and the cinematography. It's, it's sort, of, sort of a bit of an onslaught. Um, so you get that sort of emotional reaction to what you're seeing, which is really 
a man's 60 year quest sort of prove that his father was killed by the government. So, Thank you, Robert. Now we need to finish up. We're just going to finish with one last question, okay. which is what, what did you learn from Wormwood? What would you do differently next time? Um, I, I, I can honestly say I don't really think of anything that I would do. Yeah, I, I don't look at projects that way in terms of like looking what I would have done differently. I mean, I sort of feel like if it's successful, every decision that was made, whether it was good or bad, is what sort of contributed to the final result. Um, um, and I think we're always sort of analyzing what we're doing in real time. It's never the kind of thing when the project's over, we'll sort of look back and make notes as to what mistakes we made or what things we would do. It's sort of, it's like it's learned and you sort of figure out that didn't work. We don't even, so it sort of changes in the next thing. And it's one of the beauties of, of working with a director that long, you know, um, from Fog of War and all these films, every time it was something different. It was, you know, single, Fog of War was the first single subject film, which is very difficult to do a film with one interview subject. Um, because of the success of that, we were able to do, then go and do standard operating procedure, which probably where it suffered is, is we had a tremendous amount of resources. Um, you know, it's one, one of the benefits of, of winning one of those little statue things. Um, everybody wants to give you money to do something. That was a film where we had all the resources we wanted. And it, I think it was a bit overwhelming for the subject matter, um, you know, in terms of being a theatrical setting and seeing torture in such a way, it was, it was a bit much. Um, and with Rumsfeld, it was another single person, but it was slightly different in tabloid. It was the use of graphics. So every time we do something, it's, 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 doing what we can to sort of push the form forward as it pertains to sort of what Errol wants to do, uh, per se. So, um, yeah. Well, we could talk all day, but unfortunately we have to finish up because the next session's going to come in soon. Um, uh, congratulations to Curtis Levy for the Stanley Hawes Award, and thank you very much to Robert Fernandez. Sure. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.